1: Thanks to funding from the British Podcast Awards Fund and Welcome Trust, I'm embarking on a series of conversations under the banner Theory in the Flesh. I borrow the term Theory in the Flesh from and with gratitude to our feminist and QTPOC elders to draw attention to the health inequalities and disparities experienced by queer black people in the UK. The conversations convened under Theory in the Flesh explore sexual racism, masculinity, black women in medical research and therapy, and should hopefully, if I've done my job, provide a window into just some of the many considerations we have to make as queer black people in the UK about our health. I hope you all enjoy these conversations. Our livelihood, our health, our thriving is of the utmost importance to me, and a great deal of care, thought, and research has gone into these conversations. If you have a few minutes, I would be so grateful if you could show your support for Busy Being Black by filling out a short, Anonymous and data protected survey about Theory in the Flesh. You can do that at podcastviews.com.
0: I hope to just be. I feel like a lot of the work that I'm doing is so that one day people like me can just be. I don't I don't think I'll see it in my lifetime, but I have the hope that it will be achieved in somebody else's lifetime. So for me that's enough.
1: Bakita Kassada is a writer, researcher, and poet. She's also a black woman living with HIV and a health activist who holds different national and international advisory roles. In her recently completed dissertation, she critiques and challenges knowledge production at the research level and asks important questions about who is and is not involved in research that aims to uplift, support, and provide a voice for at-risk and marginalized communities. We explore the problematizing of blackness, the laziness of those who call black and other marginalized communities hard to reach, and how top-down approaches to health research that do not contextualize lived experiences limit the success of interventions and can even cost lives. She believes health researchers, medical practitioners, and funding bodies should be ethically engaging communities in the shaping, delivery, and involvement of healthcare initiatives. We open with Paquita's reading of her poem, Numbers Game. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm Busy Being Black with Paquita Quesada.
0: It's more than just numbers for us. As you count the viral loads, the tiny cells, we count birthdays, diagnosis, anniversaries, loved ones, moments, how we'll make it through the day. This life, running through our veins, goes beyond loads, beyond statistics, percentages. If you only see 90% of us, where does that leave the 10, 10, 10? It's greater than quarterly and annually, more than overseas occasions, this is daily. It's more than just events for us. Do you only count the ones who look a certain way, who sound a certain way, move a certain sort of way, pray a certain type of way, were born in a certain kind of place? Love in a restricted way, even when they don't think your way. Global gag silencing, separating us from ourselves, halting our movements left behind. Legislation lets us slip away. We are pushed aside by policy, laws leave us behind, laws that strangle us, that break us, keeping us out of your systems, funding streams that don't reach us. You speak in a language we don't understand and you don't try to learn our rhythms. Scrutinizing our behavior, overlooking how you have backed us into a corner and when you do let us in, we must fold into ourselves and crush. It's more than just speeches to us. Meet us where we are, legislations that let us breathe, policies that protect the person, laws that fight for our lives. We have travelled days to swallow. We are more than pills a day. We deserve dignity even on our third line to life. Instead of holding up numbers, hold up people. We will enlighten you. You have a lot to learn from us amen thank you
1: thank you Bikita, thank you for being here
0: thank you for having me
1: <laughs> you know uh, we're i'm recording a number of conversations this mm-hmm. week and it's the week of the jamaica 50. Mm-hmm. And so I imagine that by the time, you know, listeners hear this, they'll, they'll have heard me talking about the despondency I felt this week, mm. but I think it's also important that we hold space for ourselves and our emotions and our anger and our mm. frustration. Um, and so I'm keen to, to archive, to capture how you're feeling this week, how you're coming into this conversation today.
0: hmm so today I'm feeling good, but it is after a few weeks of feeling incredibly heavy. Mm. So I have to do, and I'm getting better at consciously doing things to prioritize my well being, but sometimes it slips. And I think, so sometimes that's just a general thing, but I think especially within the context of like the last few days, mm. and also the verdict um, of Shamima as well, of having course. her uh, her citizenship stripped and kind of the the way in which the government has made that make sense in their head. Mm-hmm. It's been very, destabilizing, but then also in ways expected because I've always had a complex relationship with Britain and what Britishness means and how welcome I feel here. Mm, So, so I think, I think it goes back to when I was very young and my parents before I felt I was ready to hear this. So when I was a child, my parents would be like, remember that you're black and having a conversation about what that could mean in the future for me. So I think there are certain points where I, there are conversations that happened in my childhood that were necessary, but I wasn't necessarily ready for. Mm. And there are different ways in which they're constantly manifesting like evidence of them are constantly manifesting. So this is a recent thing, but it's, I'm 30 now, it's just kind of been, and this is the only country and city I've ever lived in. Mm. So this is just the constant reminder of never being fully British or that the Britishness can be, is questioned. Mm and that my place is questioned. Always. Yeah, always, always.
1: And I think that's one of the things, that's part of holding the space, right, that mm. I've I found this week. Cause I, I was in a space just yesterday, you know, um, a, a, a white space, having a conversation with Topher Campbell, mm. right? who's this kind of very, very black, very queer, very black artist and theater maker. And we had this pre-Chat before, yeah. and we had chosen four images that we thought would really drive home our point that we wanted to make within that white space, mm-hmm. which is that you know there is a precarity and a terror at the moment associated with blackness. Mm-hmm. And we should be able to walk into a space and say, "This is how we're feeling." Mm. And I found myself, you know, managing this conversation in situ. And got to the third slide, and the fourth slide was quite, was very graphic. And I found myself hesitating under the white gaze, G-A-Y-S and G-A-Z-D, really hesitating. And, and I had to stop and say, I'm really struggling to go on to this next slide because I can feel the white gaze. I can feel my my identity, my, my citizenship being questioned, I felt like. It might've been a yeah. paranoia, right?
0: And you articulated that in, in that the, moment. In the moment, that's I incredible. had to release myself yeah, from, from the white
1: gaze. <laughs> and sometimes you can only really attack with that. But I, I think the point was that this, this precarity and this terror, this emotional terrorism, I think that the, mm. the country puts us through mm. is something that, we, that has to be spoken.
0: Mm-hmm. And describing it as emotional terrorism is so like apt, like mm. it's so appropriate. Um, but yeah, I think it it genuinely is exhausting. Mm. Like it it genuinely is very tiring. And I so that's why I wanted to recheck with you. Like you actually articulated that in that space because I I think that's amazing. Mm. Because I think part of the for me that one of the bits that makes it exhausting is that I I don't necessarily articulate it like that as readily. Mm. And I I but I think it's amazing that you did.
1: And I think this I, and this I think this conversation that we've started to have links to your thesis, which is why we're here, right? to yeah. talk about um, your dissertation and the wonderful research that's being undertaken with within that mm-hmm. or that has been undertaken as part mm-hmm. of that dissertation, about knowledge production, yes. and kind of the boundaries that are in place, the mm-hmm. kind of always moving goalposts um to black citizenship to uh civic participation Mm -hmm. for black people who is allowed to do what and Mm -hmm. where so can you talk to me first name your dissertation i've got it here but if you want me to read it but yeah yeah? okay so your dissertation is i'm not hard to reach you're hard to engage with the weakness of healthcare frameworks exposing and overcoming the myth that racialized groups are hard to reach How did you land on this <laughs> as your <laughs> dissertation? I mean, I love it. It lit me on fire. <laughs> it, was that,
0: it was that frustration again and the exhaustion. It was like, oh, I have an opportunity to sit down with and critique that exhaustion. Mm. But in terms of my own specific experience, so I'm a black woman living with HIV and I've been an advocate in the broadest r- um, range of the term when I didn't quite know what it meant when I was also being used in tokenistic ways. So I mean the broadest range of the term since I was in my late teens. So I would say that over the past few years, just a common phrase that is being pushed against more. It's not just me in a dissertation that's, that's doing this, but a common phrase around racialized groups, ethnic minorities, there are many umbrella terms to describe us, um, is the idea that the reason, one of the contributing factors to our poorer health outcomes is because we are hard to reach and that we're doing X, Y, Z. Mm. And I wanted to flip that on its head Um, And when I say racialized groups, I then do go on to specifically talk about black communities, but I opened it up to say, actually, this is, it affects all racialized groups, but I wanna also pin this into into the communities that I know. Mm. But for me, I wanted to flip it on its head and to begin to explore, actually, can we critique a bit more the top? And I mean, Within a, within a hierarchical and um, a power dynamic structure. So a lot of the time research is done to communities, but also can hey, we maybe critique yeah. <laughs> the people who are, right. whose knowledge is seen as, you superior. know, the bee's knees yeah. and superior. Exactly, so that's what I was trying and attempting to do.
1: And so is, is, is something like hard to reach, mm. which is a way of saying, we can't help these communities basically mm. because we can't reach them or they're hiding from us. Mm. Is that a result of knowledge production?
0: I would say yes, it's a result, but it's a result of knowledge production that I think hasn't properly involved communities. I find the term hard ah, to reach. Okay. Um, Lazy term mm. f- for not. So I think what can typically happen within in, within interventions is that something is framed as the solution, and all communities should engage with that solution. Right. And it doesn't necessarily appreciate the experiences and the nuances of different communities based on ethnicity, gender, sexuality, or all of the above. Cause we're always seen in, in little bits, right? Yeah. It's our ethnicity, then it's our sexuality. Like they can't be somebody who's thinking about both at the same time. Like, of course not. <laughs> yeah, So black um, people are just black. No, they're just black, <laughs> exactly. So I think one of the things that I have, and one of the things that has, led me unexpectedly into research was getting a better understanding of how research informs so much like it can it literally the research that is publicized and held up it can influence all sorts of things from policies and it even speaks to my poem about Mm. um policies healthcare interventions but for me the crucial question was who is producing that knowledge and how are the people who it's going to affect being involved in producing the knowledge as well. Of course. I've got yeah. an example
1: here from your, uh, I've got an example here from your thesis mm. uh, actually about that, about the world health organization. Yes. Do you yeah. Want to say more yeah. About yeah.
0: That? Yes, definitely. So <laughs> no, <okay>. absolutely. <laughs> so absolutely. Josh, No problem at all. So, okay. So some time ago, a few years ago, I don't remember the exact date, but when it, A lot of the focus in terms of living with HIV, let me contextualise it, and HIV specifically, so this is a virus that affects the immune system um, and can be managed with medication and people on effective treatment live to a normal life expectancy. And they cannot pass the virus. And they cannot pass the virus on sexually. So a lot of the interventions around um, HIV is making sure that people who are already living with HIV are tested and then on treatment for all of the benefits that we've just spoken about. And then also HIV prevention. So looking at different ways to prevent um, HIV being transmitted. One of the ways that HIV can be transmitted, the bodily fluids, is through breast milk. So... At one point, general guidelines were we need to prevent babies being born with HIV or potentially acquiring HIV during breastfeeding. So the approach was then if anybody who has a child, do not breastfeed that child so that you don't transmit HIV. So it seems like a sound logic, but it did not factor in. And instead, I should say, don't breastfeed, but provide formula milk for for your child, which requires access to water and sterile water. So it seems like a, a sound argument, but it didn't factor in who globally has access to what right so one of the results of that were there were then infant deaths or sicknesses linked to like gastro um and and that was because some people didn't have access to clean water so they were using unsanitary water with formula feed and then that created its own problems so now the guidelines are that the term that is used is uh, resource-rich settings and resource-limited settings, I think. Yeah, okay, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's that if you live in resource-rich settings, so it would be considered a developed... Resource-limited countries. Resource, yeah, yeah, settings and countries. If you live in resource-rich countries, that would be like... um, Developed countries, countries that have exploited, yeah, 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 I really (laughs) hate that term, but it's true, yeah, yeah, (laughs) the countries that have exploited, and then then you should formula feed because the assumption is that you have access to sterile water, water. but then also a slight critique, side note, there's also the assumption there that you have access to the money to buy formula feed because it's not cheap. Right. And not everyone supplies it And it's not free. like they're
1: giving it to you for free. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. instead of your breast milk.
0: Exactly. And then if you live in resourced, limited countries, so quote-unquote developing countries, actually, aka exploited countries, mm. then you should breastfeed because it is it is better than some of the, al- the t- alternatives that I spoke about. Yeah, I
1: think one of the statistics here is uh, these guidelines forever did not consider... Varying access to safe drinking water across the world. Later, it was found that babies who do not breastfeed are more than 14 times more likely to die from diarrhea or respiratory infections Mm -hmm. than babies who are exclusively breastfed in the first six months.
0: Yep. And so for me, in that point of my dissertation, I just felt, I wasn't involved in the putting together of the guidelines, but surely the people on the ground knew how much access they had so i question whether or not they were appropriately involved in the developing of said guidelines before they became just the rule of thumb of nobody should breastfeed their child right 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 (laughs) you know right
1: right. yeah which (laughs) which even you saying it sounds highly improbable impractical why would how can that be Guidelines that are passed down
0: exactly, but I but I think it's this top-down approach, which right. is the reason why I'm I'm very interested in who is producing knowledge, how it is being produced, and then also critiquing the top because there's just so much there. There is so much research and study on us.
1: Well, I, I guess not all. So I guess part of knowledge production is mm. the data gathering. Yes, right, because. Presume, like they must. So they only found out after the fact yeah. that they were fourteen times more likely to die from diarrhea if they don't breastfeed. Mm-hmm. And so presumably that that this problem, this, these deaths arose after the fact. Mm-hmm. And so before they get to that point, I guess part of the knowledge production would be how are we gathering yeah. data in the first place yeah. that might account for these different considerations?
0: It's the methodology. Right. So methodology. I I am. Um, I am very much for community led research and also recognizing the knowledge that is held within our communities, even if it isn't considered. So it would be considered like grey research, which is not academic, of which course. also is very like uh, an yeah. icky Yuck. term. <laughs> I don't like it at all. Um, but, and I'm also with a caveat of a firm believer in peer research so it's slightly different so community-led research would be actually it's the communities affected by the research who are generating and creating the knowledge and then they would implement whatever findings they might or the next action the call to action from that knowledge right, right so it's a collective exactly okay. and so but with peer research models it's not necessarily the the research is led by the community but that the research might be led by an institution, quote-unquote, involving members of that community with a lived experience, being involved in maybe critiquing or contributing to the methodology to potentially highlight some of the issues that we were talking about Right, and so this kind of
1: like toes a line between the gatekeeping of academia and the methodologies and what's considered knowledge, usable knowledge, and the people on the ground who are actually the who are having research done to them.
0: Yes. Yeah. And it's the idea is to flip the one to say that you can occupy both spaces. Yes. The lived experience and the skill set. It's not an either or. And then the other aspect as well oh, is Of course. Yeah, because yeah. it's often <laughs> thought of as an either or. There's the person Mike, there's the person that has the lived experience and then they the subject. Yeah. And then there's the person with the expertise. Yeah, who presumably who, is not from that community exactly, because they're in academia. Exactly, right. exactly. So it's it's flipping and critiquing this. And there are there is growing um, there are more movements towards this. And I feel within HIV advocacy, there's a f- there's a phrase, and I believe somebody would probably like comment if I've I've gotten this wrong, but I believe it's a phrase that is borrowed from disability rights and accessibility rights that are nothing about us without us. Yes. I think it's borrowed from disability rights. Um, and so I think within HIV- Which is also, HIV sorry,
1: side note, it's also the name of an incredible film about the role that black women have played in the fight against HIV. Yes, 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 yes. Days on yes, yes. yes, yeah.
0: Um, so, so, yeah, so I think it's one of the things that's just important that the person with the lived experience or within whatever community, I'm using the term community in the broadest sense, sure. um, can also have the skill set, and then this notion of working with an institution, whether it's academia or um, or NGOs or anything, right. to create knowledge together. So one that might be seen as a bit more of like a reforming approach in terms of like sure. generating knowledge, you could sure. argue. yeah, you could
1: argue. <laughs> I think one of the things, that, so Theory in the Flesh, this mm. um, the series that is um, funded by the Wellcome Trust and the British Podcast yeah. Awards Fund. The name Theory in the Flesh comes from our feminist and QTPOC elders. Mm. So Gloria Anzaldwa, Anz- Anzaldwa um, first said it in the 1970s as a way of talking about this embodied experience that Um, black and brown bodies um, are impacted by the world around them and have no choice but to talk about their experiences of racism, of misogyny, misogynoir, of sexism, et cetera, et cetera. Then E. Patrick Johnson, the queer black academic, used it again in 2005 to talk about the specific way that queer black bodies um, need to be able to speak of and through our bodies. Mm -hmm. And so I'm borrowing it again. And and so one of the things that E. Patrick Johnson said um, is that within academia, one of the things that queer black studies is struggling against is that the oral tradition has historically been essential to, and is still in many ways, essential mm. to the black experience. Mm. We are passing on information, knowledge, stories, histories, warnings to this oral tradition. But these oral traditions, as you've said, fall into a gray area. And so, E. Patrick Johnson is suggesting that we have to um, extend the bounds of what is considered viable, usable knowledge, and that Definitely. isn't always produced within academia.
0: Definitely, I completely agree. It's even one of the reasons why I go to poetry as well as research mm-hmm. because I feel there is a way in which that you can communicate through storytelling and the arts that is incredibly powerful and is often, and is
1: often... It feels recognisable. Yeah, feel, right? yeah, it
0: does feel recognisable, but it's often dismissed as not credible enough. But a lot of, like you're saying, the way that we carry our stories, we learn from each other, we teach each other, Mm. is within that storytelling and within that art form. And I think it goes back again to really shaking and questioning what knowledge and how knowledge is presented is more usable, to use your term, and more valuable and more valid. Mm. And it's, it's ultimately about that. I would say it's ultimately about that. And I think it's one of the reasons why I have especially a soft spot for qualitative research. Yes, Like nothing against the quant side of things, <laughs> but I have this as, a special affinity to qualitative research because it, I'm very much like, a, I try to be a why person, understand why things happen mm. or what could be in the future. And the possibilities. And I think qualitative research enables that and story it's ultimately storytelling. Qualitative yeah. research is storytelling. It's about the depth and the richness of experiences.
1: But do you think that even if that qualitative research is captured or the storytelling research is captured, that it's analyzed, that there that there might even be a barrier to the analysis of that yeah. research? Yep. Right? Yep.
0: I think, yeah. So in the way that maybe the research is coded and what is seen as more as more valuable based on, so in terms of the experiences that are seen more noteworthy, I would say, as opposed to valuable. So, and especially depending on who who is analyzing that research and whether they can understand potentially like latent messages within, so say for example, we're doing an interview and there might be some latent messages and things that might not be obvious that you've said if I don't share a lived experience or a or a greater understanding of your experience beyond this one hour interview that we might have mm. for example
1: Hey it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith co-star of my upcoming film If only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? In order to catch those latent messages mm. in order to understand what's really being said there particularly for those of us who have who are experienced in silence and not being as forthcoming yeah. one how do you get the person to give you the qualitative research that is helpful mm. noteworthy usable mm. then how do you who is analyzing that in the mm. first place across all of these fronts there needs to be people with a similar lived experience yeah and so this kind of gatekeeping then becomes a multi multi-gated <laughs> barrier I guess
0: and I think that that's where the role of a peer researcher and I've done peer research so that the idea of that is you are um Conducting research with people that you share a a lived experience with. That's the notion of Uh, a peer uh, researcher. They're also part of the community.
1: Not like Sally from um, Middlesbrough, partnered with. Yeah, basically, (laughs) basically.
0: So whether our experiences will never be the same, like the exact same, but you would be able to ideally recognize that I have an understanding before I even entered the room of your potential experiences. So I've mm. done lived I've done peer research within the context of people living with HIV and within also the context of other youth activists because that's how I kind of started within advocacy. It was youth activism on a national and international stage and what it what it meant to be a young person living with HIV within that space. Mm. So that's the argument, like the response to the question that you've just asked is that that's where the peer research model is meant to be effective in that you have a team of different people who can catch, who are exactly catching. So you might have the expert in methodology and then the peer researcher saying, this is how it applies to this community or at least consider these aspects when linking in with the community, but so it is a great, I think it's it's a good model, it's a better model. And then it's also thinking about the, base that is created for any community members that who are then involved in that kinds of research because for example there is a paper oh, I can't remember who it's by now but considering the emotional labor of peer researchers hey, yeah. and how the specific <laughs> context that they give because it is a Canadian piece of research person living with HIV Um, no peer researchers, plural living with HIV HIV, from indigenous communities. Mm -hmm. And some of the emotional labor around constantly having to share their HIV status, having to feel like they have one foot in one camp and another foot in another camp, having to feel like they're persistently educating their non-indigenous colleagues. So it's the model the idea of the model is good, but with the the extra sensitivities of that, the duality and the positionality of who that researcher yeah, and researchers would be. So yeah. Uh,
1: because of course that, of course there's a cost involved, mm. <laughs> right? And that's not funny, but like yeah. it's one of those aha moments yeah. where the only, well, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like one of the best options is getting the people who are most impacted to then do the labor, is that what you're saying?
0: Yes, yes. But I think it's more recognizing that their perspective will create more valid research because it will probably right. include a broader range of the people from those communities. Got it.
1: I'm curious what this what your dissertation this research that you've undertaken mm. this impact it's had on you.
0: Oh, that's a good question. That's such a good question. I've never thought about it okay. actually. <laughs> I've never thought about it. I think it was it was nice to have the space to think about my frustrations more, and to also, to see that other people were writing about this as well. But then it also made me, th- so it was really interesting because I start, I start with the dissertation about critiquing this top-down approach, the way in which racialized groups are problematized, so like our poorer health outcomes um oh, we're, but we're something then something to be fixed yeah and that we're something right. to be fixed and that the knowledge of fixing us is coming from outside so that, so this is how i like i try to do this and then try to end on a, a maybe a solution not right. saying it's the complete solution yeah. but how can the role of <laughs> no, community did you figure it out
1: yeah <laughs> so, no, i
0: didn't figure it out i didn't i didn't have enough time the dissertation was due in september i was like we got to get these words on this page <laughs> um, but then it was sort of what is the role of community led research, which has always been happening. This is not a new, so I'm not saying like, this is what we should now start doing. This right. has been happening right. for a long time. Right. Within the within the now traditional term of research, and in also the, what you're talking about, pushing against what is considered research, it's been done in that way as well. But then it made me think of, cause I started to talk about the peer research model and I have that experience mm. also made me think of my positionality in and my how, so as in what duty I have to make sure that different members from my community, so specifically around black people living with HIV and people living with HIV generally are represented within research. So it can even be, there is typically less representation of gay um of black gay and bi men in research, or of Do you women mean in, in the research, UK? yeah, in the UK. Okay. So, so just understanding, and then also my responsibility in making sure that the the intersectionality is factored in as well. So we're not just coming as women, oh. right. like like gay and bi, and yeah, it's like right. <laughs> you know, yeah. like in bits. And then also just thinking about the accessibility of the research. So it might sound simple, but the way in which how the questionnaire asking you about your gender, the way in which it's worded, is it gonna make you feel included? Like the research has included you or not? If it's just saying, Man, woman. If it's just saying something that's very reductive, yes. you know, or even because there are many different ways. Um, we we touched on it earlier on that HIV can be transmitted. Mm. So, if on the questionnaire it asks when did you, when were you diagnosed, it there is an assumption there that you were consciously involved in your diagnosis. Right. Whereas if you were diagnosed when you were a child, actually the date of your diagnosis and the year could be w- wildly apart to when you actually found out about the fact you're living with HIV. So you know, so some of these wow. nuances.
1: I mean, that's quite a nuance. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which yeah. is
0: often overlooked. For example, so that's so that's what I mean in terms of like understanding the responsibility of trying to capture different perspectives. Cause yeah, I'm a woman living, I'm a black woman living with HIV. It's just one perspective. Yeah. And how am I gonna try my best to bring in different voices into the research mm. and have different people feel like it's accessible to them. And I think as well, this responsibility Actually, you know what? Do you the feel like this thing? responsibility
1: falls on your shoulders?
0: I, I am. Th- that's just my personality. Sometimes I have to like push against what I consider my responsibility. Right, I think that's right. an, that's an honest like individual thing, but I think also. The. Factoring in, what trying to create like a safe space as well. So saying, so research is really important Mm -hmm. in that it can influence so much. It can influence laws and policies beyond health. Um, It can influence interventions, but also, so so for that reason, I would say, it's important to contribute to research if somebody's asking you to be a participant, but also you should feel safe within that research as well. Right and your safety whether it's i think within this context it would more be around like emotional safety what what somebody is being asked and things like that you you get to prioritize that because there's there's a scholar that I've just come across like just come across called Eve Tuck and she is an indigenous um scholar and that's a lot of where her her theorizing takes place and she talks about how Black people, indigenous people and race, I'll say racialized groups, not that I've heard her use that term specifically, Mm -hmm. but as an umbrella term, a lot of the time research is done about our pain. So that's what I mean in terms of that research is important, but also you do have a right to feel safe within that research like True. it hasn't unearthed like a whole bunch of stuff and it's like so josh thank you very much for your time here's your voucher for participating
1: <laughs> <50K to> Amazon. <laughs> There you go.
0: <laughs> have a nice day we yeah. might tell you the findings one day of our research or maybe we won't because now we've got the knowledge from you that we wanted sort of thing so i've and i've like i say i've just just recently so i'm now i'm just like whoa actually how do we how are we through our research asking constantly fixating on pain?
1: Yeah, and I think this links to suspicions that can that, that are prevalent within black communities. Mm. Uh, suspicions of the health service. Yeah, yeah. Right. There's well, I've from conversations I've had, there's either kind of a uh, blind respect for the white coat, right? or there is um, a a deep distrust of white people in white coats because of a long history of abuse. Um, And so this safety, it might even, I don't know what I'm trying to ask, but I Uh, thought that was an important point to raise. Yeah,
0: it's a very important (laughs) point to raise because I think that it's one of the, and this has been spoken about before, but it's one of the aspects that, Healthcare needs to grapple with in terms of why there is that mistrust and that mistrust coming from valid places. Because I don't want to say now in this present day, the interventions that are available aren't good and they aren't warranted. But when there is that disconnect that disconnect shouldn't just be dismissed as, I need to fix your way of thinking to engage with me. Actually, yes. that disconnect and distrust comes from very rural places. There is a lot of medical advancements that have been made off of the back of intentionally cruel experiments on black bodies. Mm. There And there are many to name, but one would be um, the Tuskegee um, trial study. Um, and it was about, injecting black men in America with syphilis, just to see what happens when a person has syphilis, Mm. you know, unknowingly injected. And even when um, a cure was found for, and treatment was found for syphilis, those men were not told about the cure or that they had been injected with syphilis. And there are different, there are different, examples around the world Mm -hmm. you know so it comes from yeah so it comes from so it comes from a really that guardedness and distrust can't just be dismissed because there's a legacy there there's a history there
1: i'm just letting that history sit Mm -hmm. there for a minute Mm -hmm. because i think that's also part of the problem with hard to reach right is it erases a very real history, and now I'm thinking about it, links to this kind of, um, these white attitudes, just get over it, Mm. right, just get Mm. over it. It What they say to us about racism Mm. all the time, you're focused too much on it, Mm. as if that history can be erased.
0: Mm. And as though it doesn't influence everything now. It's like, it's, it's, it's yeah, here, <laughs> it's, not, it's not history, it's a very living present. And unless we critically engage, it will, I, do, I don't wanna sound like I don't have hope because I am also very much filled with hope. But unless we critically engage, it will be a future as well. Unless we're critically engaging with the, the things that we're thinking, we're feeling, the ways in which we're practicing things. So there's no just getting over it. No,
1: and I I love this idea that the suspicion is valid. Not just that, you know, obviously it is.
0: It's, but it's as in the suspicion, it has a historical grounding. Yes,
1: but also that when we then see that you know, PrEP isn't reaching mm-hmm. black heterosexual communities in the UK. Mm-hmm. And that this drop in HIV diagnoses which is yeah. being celebrated and banged on about doesn't actually have this is not having the same impact mm-hmm. in black heterosexual mm-hmm. communities. And so how are we
0: or even black gay communities That's as right. well? You know, we yeah.
1: are all of us are <laughs> disproportionately impacted, right? And so they're So that distrust or this suspicion that is rooted in a very historical happening, Mm. which is still very recent, Mm. is almost compounded by the fact that we're then also not seeing ourselves represented in HIV interventions, in PrEP promotions, in mental health, and all of these interventions that we could benefit from, Mm. we're not seeing ourselves in. Mm. And I think this all compounds. Mm -hmm. I don't know, I haven't researched this, but Mm. I'm just, it's big.
0: It's massive, it's massive, it's
1: massive. I think I just want, like, I want our communities to feel seen Mm -hmm. and loved,
0: Mm -hmm. right? Yeah.
1: And I think this frustration that is linked to the deportations, that is linked to mental health, that is linked to the school to prison pipeline in this country, that like young, black caribbean boys are four times as likely to be expelled from school that expulsion from school almost guarantees a prison sentence in this country like that this health thing is is obviously super important but like it cannot be examined tackled looked at in any meaningful in any meaningful way unless like these societal ills yes Definitely. I looked at and incorporated too
0: because it's it's a it's a manifestation. So, it's a, so say for ex, for example, when it comes to HIV, it's a it's a manifestation within a health within health right. of racism, of transphobia, of homophobia, of xenophobia, of sexism. So definitely understanding, and I guess it goes back to my thing about, I'm very much about why mm, and mm, why things mm. happen. It, I think it's crucial. And just looking at numbers without thinking about why, and not just thinking about why in terms of why aren't communities engaging? Because mm. that's where the why conversation often comes. <laughs> yeah, it's, which is it's too thinking late. That the stru- I was, yeah. yeah, it's also the structural, The structural barriers, but then the, the very intentional ideologies that then influence those structural barriers Mm. as well. And that's the thing that we, that isn't moving as quickly as I would like, but then also in terms of the solution, I don't. Have like a that I would never be able to say this is my crystal solution about this. Like, because I don't expect, I don't expect. (laughs) I'm not putting that responsibility on my head. No, no, no. (laughs) That
1: sounds like a very Becky thing to do. Anyway, (laughs) I figured it out. This is definitely the solution. This is is all we need
0: to do, guys.
1: Yeah. I am curious if, if you're, if one you're you're you know ten plus years in Mm. advocacy and activism. Coupled with your research, which is obviously linked mm. to this, coupled with your own lived experience, you know, adding to that your lived experience—you can not couple things twice. <laughs> add to that your lived experience. If there's someone listening, if there, you know, if we imagine the individual human beings mm. listening to Busy Being Black, are there ways, in your opinion, that we can take charge of our own health? Mm are there ways that we can overcome as individuals, right? Because if we're, if we're talking about the kind of macro, yes. and we understand that as black people in this society, we are disproportionately impacted by school to prison pipeline, poor mm. mental health, diabetes, prostate cancer, <laughs> HIV, <Yep. laughs> death and pregnancy, yep. right? But if we look at the micro, if we look at the individual, mm. are there things that Busy Being Black listeners can do, in your opinion?
0: I would say, um. So I'd say two things. I think individual, but then also collective, okay, so slightly. Sure. So one of the things that's really exciting me recently, actually, is Black Ballad has recently oh, done a Black Motherhood survey. And I don't know what it says. Like, I, d- I don't know what the data says, because they're only, like, crunching the numbers. The The survey only just closed. But it's the idea of, you. you just mentioned about, us more likely five times more likely wow. to die during um, childbirth. D- childbirth and the fact that black ballad is attempting to understand black motherhood in a in a broader way so as well as recognizing that, but also understanding the story of black motherhood, cause mm. I completed the survey and I was just like, I was just very excited. So there's a, and that's an example of community led research. And I'm really interested to see how other organizations will engage with that. Because within the first three days, they had a thousand responses. Whoa. I don't know how many they finished on, I but in the first lot. three days, yeah. a thousand responses. Now, please tell me that we're hard to reach. The hey. first three days. <laughs> I was just like this is amazing and this yeah. is so exciting. So well, I it's think it's a trust thing. It, exactly. It's, it's a, a trust, trust thing. It's like I'm giving you my information and I know you've got my back. I don't know what you're going to do with it. But you've got my But back. I know that you've got you're going to be well intentioned with this information and you're going to try and do something with it. And I think there's the other aspect of it. It's like sometimes people they the information is taken, the research is gathered the findings or the reflections. It's like, but what did you do? Like what was the, what was done yeah, yeah, sort of thing? Yeah. <laughs> what was done? It's so funny, so, I just read an
1: article, sorry to interrupt. Just yeah, the no. other day, I was, Ke- and Kenyon Farrow and I were talking about it, yeah. talking It's an exchange over social media. But um, it was about the, this new ghost DNA that's been found by analyzing the DNA of 405 West Africans. And it was, you know, uh, Kenyon called out that, like, you know, why is it a ghost DNA? Yeah. We're not magical black people, and the kind of problematic and very kind of um, medically racist terms yeah. that were used in this article. Yeah. And I was like, well, one of the things is, how do they get the for that DNA? Yeah.
0: <laughs> That's a good question. How did they get the DNA? That yeah. was my question. Yeah. <laughs> F- fuck ghost. <laughs> How'd you
1: get that DNA? Yeah. I was so curious because I, I have a really hard time believing that 405 West Africans or black people in general just said, yeah, here, take my mm. spit. Mm. I don't know. Maybe that, maybe they did. I don't want to generalize. I'm just mm. saying I wouldn't give mine over and I don't know many black people who would.
0: Understandable. So anyway. <laughs> I, did it, so did, the article didn't talk about, no, like, of course the, no. yeah, okay. Yeah. Ken,
1: Kenyan said he was gonna try to find out, mm. yeah, try to find the research so he could find out how that, how that DNA was collected. But I, I just, it was the first thing I thought of. Yeah. How did they get their hands on that DNA mm. to find this ghost DNA? Mm. What prompted them to look for this ghost DNA in these West Africans? Why the West Africans? I've got so many questions about why West Africa? Why 405? Mm. Did they have permission? Did You know, mm-hmm. and I just think we have to ask these questions. Mm. I think, not that people aren't, sorry, but that my recent awakening has been to say how people acquire information about us is not always with our permission.
0: Yep, it's true, it's true. Um, on an, So I'm thinking about your question in terms of on an individual level, um, I think I do genuinely believe that knowledge is power. Mm. Like I genuinely do believe that. And on on an individual level, living with HIV and being within the advocacy scene, I've had access to a lot of knowledge and I feel as though it has made me more confident to, question and challenge healthcare professionals and actually specifically non-HIV healthcare professionals because that's where I've mm. had more difficulties than that, with yeah. so, <laughs> <laughs> and and I think it's genuinely because of the knowledge that I have that I have acquired and that I've gotten Earned but then also well. feeling like I can implement it because i think when you have i think when you have knowledge but you don't feel like you can do something with it it can become very heavy and suffocating but when you feel as if you are able to do something with that knowledge so it, so i'll give like a very it might seem like a simple example but it really bugged me it was very recent about a week or two ago when i went to the dentist and i haven't been in some time i feel like i'm very good with all of my health except for the, the dentist sure. and i don't know why yeah. so <laughs> really bad, but anyway, I went to the dentist. Um, And the dentist told me to lie down, you know, on a standard dentist chair, make myself comfortable, cool, no problem. So then I was lying on this chair, um, lying back on this chair is like, if anyone's been to the dentist, you'll kind of know what I mean, you can visualize it. And the dentist screen was behind me, so I can't see her and her screen and her chair was like facing the screen. So she was then looking at my records from the very long time ago that I was last at the dentist. And she was asking me a series of questions. And some of them irked me because I hadn't been in so long. So I was already ready for that uncomfortableness of having to explain (laughs) why I hadn't been there in so long. But it was just like, why are we having a conversation? I'm facing the wall over there. I'm lying down, even even in like a therapy session, I've never lied down like this and not faced my therapist. You've got your back to me, you're on the screen. And I actually said to her, you know what, it feels really weird having a, having a conversation with you and I can't see you, we're not facing each other. So just for the purposes of this, I'm gonna sit up and I'm gonna face you. And then when it's time for you to examine my teeth, I'll lie down as I meant to lie down. Oh, fantastic. Genuinely, that there is no question that that sense of empowerment has come from the advocacy work and the information that I have gathered about actually, you know what you do deserve to feel comfortable when you're with your doctor. It's not just hey, about them yes. kind of talking at you. And so that's what I mean in terms of let's seek out the information that we need to be as healthy as we can be and to prioritize our well being and to actually, and not to just feel like everything, when we're in those spaces, it's a, you're definitely better than me because you're the doctor, yeah. sort of thing, yes, and I yes, can't yes, challenge anything. Has proven that's not yeah, true. and I can't challenge every anything that you do, even just giving me eye contact because you're the doctor, sort of. Th-
1: that beautiful bell sound, <laughs> the new addition to the studio, <laughs> lets me know that we are almost out of time. I, have you enjoyed this? I've I have. You have electrified My have. brain is like
0: zing. Oh, good. I was just, I just at times uh, I was just like, <clears> am I making sense? Totally coming out of my mouth.
1: <laughs> and what I think is so you know there's a couple there's so many points I want to make. Mm. But what I think is so important about this and why I'm so keen to bring academics, black academics, mm. onto the show is because I think there is this misconception that certain people do not handle academic information right it's kept from Mm -hmm. us right Mm -hmm. and yes there is flowery academic languages like uh, i hate reading and everyone does Mm -hmm. but what's happening within academia particularly that i think black academics and queer black academics are leading on is really edifying and energizing shit Mm -hmm. right that impacts our lives and so i'm so grateful for you coming here and talking about this research and this work and that you've done this life that you've lived. I think you're so cool.
0: Oh, thank you. (laughs) Thanks so much for having me. Yeah,
1: we're not done yet. I do have my last question, which I ask all of my guests. What do you hope for?
0: I hope to just be. I feel like a lot of the work that I'm doing is so that one day people like me can just be. I don't I don't think I'll see it in my lifetime, but I have the hope that it will be achieved in somebody else's lifetime. So for me, that's enough. But yeah, just to be and to breathe, feel like you can just breathe.
1: Thank you for being here.
0: Thank you for having me. (laughs) Thank you.
1: Bakita Casada is a writer, researcher and poet. You'll find links to her work in the show notes. If you've enjoyed Theory in the Flesh, please head to podcastviews.com to leave your feedback. Your feedback lets me, the Welcome Trust, and the British Podcast Awards Fund know if Theory in the Flesh has resonated with you. Head to podcastviews.com to fill out the anonymous and data-protected survey. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. Thank you to our partners, UK Black Pride and Blackout UK, and to you, the listeners. Remember this, your support doesn't cost any money. Retweets, shares, ratings, and reviews all help, so please keep the support coming. Finally, thank you to Anthony Giles, a queer black Grammy-nominated producer based in New York City, for these bomb-ass Busy Being Black beats. Ashe.